0: The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a handbrake-off.
1: Hello, I'm Ian Stone. This is Handbrake-Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm joined, as always, by Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas. Hello, guys. Nice to see you.
2: Hello, Ian. How are you doing?
1: Yeah, I'm all right. Thank you very much. And also, finally, uh, Mr. Lee Dixon (laughs) is here as well. Hello, Lee.
3: All right, Stoney.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know what, it gives me so much pleasure, you call me Stony In that weird Cockney accent as well. I don't know what that See what was. I
3: did there? Did half Cockney, half Mank.
1: Yeah, it was a little odd. By the way, the other thing I, I wanted to mention to you, well done on the uh, Baked Potato song with oh, uh, yeah. Matt Lucas. <laughs> and Martin Keown oh, has a sense of humour, does he not?
3: Uh, it, it was just hilarious, wasn't it? it was just, well, the hilarious thing was me having to ha- ask Martin to be on the end of it based on the fact he wasn't in the <laughs> beginning of it when the back four were asked and then I had to ring him and Matt goes I've got an idea for the ending I said what's that he goes ring Martin up and say would you mind being on the ending going what about me being in the back four I said Are you kidding me he, if he finds out he's not one of the originals <laughs> he'll go mad anyway and he'll just come down the phone and strangle me and uh, anyway he he took it Took it like it was meant. And and he was he was funny at the end. I said to him, we've all got some Arsenal on. So, you know, I've got a um, an Arsenal thing behind me and a scarf. And Tony's managed to go one better and put his armband on with his shirt. And uh, and then Martin went full blazer and um, and tie. It was quite incredible.
1: <laughs> well, it's very funny. If you haven't seen it, uh, Matt Lucas uh, baked potatoes on, which he's done with a lot of celebrities. But he got to the Arsenal back four on it. Uh... Well, it was lovely to see.
4: Yeah. Lee, how, how many takes? Just out of curiosity. I mean, you pull off—you all pull off that seriously miserable <clears throat> growly look, particularly mm. boldy, I must say. Uh, oh, with yeah, the plum. scary, isn't
3: he? <laughs> well, he, Matt said, um, "Well, Matt gave us instructions. We obviously all did it remotely, so we had to listen to the song on two devices and do our little line. Um, and it was yes. I mean, we honestly." Yeah, thank you, baked potato. How many times can you get that wrong? So we just in the timing, it. though. We just did it four times, and then it was kind of like my idea to go. Why don't we do the offside arm up at the end because he goes Arsenal or up the Gunners or something? So, so we'll all put our hands up and go offside, and then somebody somebody goes. Well, you need to go back to training because all your, your arms go up at different times, and I said. Well, we weren't in the same room. (laughs) So we didn't actually, I couldn't actually see Nigel putting his up or I'd have delayed mine a little bit. Well, it was was hilarious doing it. But we said to, I said to, um, Matt said to me, um, he said, we should, I said, we should all do it like we're, you know, really miserable, no smiling as if we're part of the back four actually playing a game. But I didn't expect Baldy to take it to a whole new level of really wanting to kill somebody. It pulled
4: it off
1: very well, I must say. The misery did come across.
4: There was um, there was a picture of Baldy uh, from the latest pictures from the training ground this week, and he was joining mm. in. Uh, and it was, was it he? was a it's a brilliant picture if you check it out because there's all the the current players there, and it looks like they're maybe defending a corner or attacking corners, the case may be and looking at a ball coming across. And Boldy's quite close on a Aubameyang, marking him. And and everyone else is around, and you just think that's definitely the hardest uh, defending that goes on in the training ground. (laughs) Good stuff. All for that.
1: Now, uh, in part two, we'll be playing a clip of Amy uh, talking to one Arsene Wenger. Uh, Pretty wide-ranging chat. He sounds, I think, as twinkly as ever. You can read about it on the Athletic website. Uh, I should also say at this point that we will talk again in more detail about Ossam Wenger uh, when his book comes out later in the year. What are the things, I wanted to ask you before we started chatting, because we've got a pretty packed mailbag, I mean I think we can call it a mailbag, uh, and we're going to answer some of your questions uh, today, but what are the things you miss most and least about Arsene Wenger? Lee, we'll start with you, as the one person who played under him, knows him well, what are the things you miss most and least? Um, Most
3: his, I guess it's his um, incredible sense of humour, even though he doesn't He doesn't know he's funny, but then he laughs at himself. So he's kind of got this really quirky um, sense of humour where sometimes you think he hasn't actually got the English sense of humour. We're all joking around him, but really he's very clever, as we know. And he kind of manipulates it into a way that you end up laughing at him about something he's done or something he's tripped up over because he's notoriously... Uh, clumsy and uh, trips over things things fall on him he's like that's why he was nicknamed Cluso because everything that could sort of happen to to somebody happened to him and uh we took great joy in laughing at those moments but he always kind of laughed with us and we we got is he does he realize he's he's being funny and the more i got to know him the more i realized that he actually, I just thought he didn't get stuff to begin with. And then I realised uh, after sort of six years that he got everything wow. and it was kind of, he was laughing at us in the long term. <laughs> and he had the last laugh, but the best one ever was when his apple pie fell off his plate and he didn't realise it when was at pre-match meal. It was just, <laughs> he actually turned to look for where the ice cream was and as he turned, his piece of apple pie flew off his plate and he didn't realise. And then he, and we all sort of saw it and watched him walk back to his place setting. And he saw us all looking at him and he kind of went, smiled, as, as you can imagine he did. And then he sat down and put his plate down. And when he looked down at his plate, there was nothing on it. And he did that. <laughs> that little, sh- Where's it gone? And it was on the floor about 10 yards away. Uh, uh, absolute genius. I think he did it on purpose. And he was just, he should have been, he should have been in a Clouseau film, definitely.
1: Uh, James, we'll come to you. Most and least. I think I was thinking about what I
2: miss most. I mean, there are so many different things, but I've never enjoyed someone lying to me as much as I did with Arsene Wenger, as someone who's been in press conferences with him. If you asked him if he was interested in a player and he said no, but he said it with a certain inflection or a certain smile you knew he meant exactly the opposite of what he was telling you. It was the same if you asked him if he saw a red card offence. No, of course he didn't. But you knew absolutely that he did. And I think he just had that wonderful charm of being able to sort of tell you something to your face, but you could see in his eyes he meant something completely different. What I won't miss, and sincerely, is, is seeing him in pain after a defeat. Because as someone who I really admired and really loved for what he did for Arsenal, what he brought to Arsenal, particularly in the latter period of his career with us things hurt him and results hurt him the criticism he received hurt him and seeing someone who you care about even if you don't really know them go through that and suffer that he suffered so much in the job and I took no pleasure in seeing that suffering so i'm I'm grateful to not be seeing that anymore yeah
1: quite
4: um and... amy yeah that that really chimes and it kind of relates to what I was thinking about what I missed least, which is really that sort of poisonous atmosphere um, that was never that far away uh, in the last while of of his time at Arsenal. And uh, even just going to a game in the crowd at at times, or if you looked at things online or whatever it was, it it was so tiring to have that sense of, are you for, are you against, and everyone bickering, and it's sometimes getting incredibly nasty. And you almost felt like you, you know, it was, uh, you were brave if you were going to take a uh, a stand on whether you were for or against, because you just would open yourself up to, you know, so much from people who took the other side. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't miss that kind of atmosphere around the club, that in a way he was a lightning rod for a lot of people's frustrations. Um, what do I miss the most? Well, <laughs> it's funny because I did this interview and it was so, just so brilliant to speak to him again and hear his voice. Um went up uh, today on um, the internet and amongst the sort of many responses, there was one from a a guy who I think looking at his, uh, uh, his bio was a a, a Man City fan who said, it really tickled me this. And he went, Oh, I hate Arsene Fenger. He's always sounding like a philosopher. (laughs) I thought to myself, you know, Oh God, these, you know, (laughs) God, these philosophers, how dare they have an opinion? You know, how dare they start thinking about things? God, it's so annoying. Uh, It really made me laugh because Arsene's um, absolutely dazzling intellect and the way that he could think originally and deeply and with a social conscience about more or less anything going on in the world made me quite proud uh, as someone uh, who who loves Arsenal that the manager of the club had that about him, had that uh, integrity, that status and was able to communicate about things that matter, uh, with such it's such a way that you'd be mad not to listen to it, really. Um, and 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 I just thought that was a, a, a blessing for Arsenal. I really still believe that what you know in the qualities that you want from your manager. And I'm sure when they sit down and have a a, a box that, of things that they need ticking off in any potential manager. Obviously, they need to win games. They need to you, you know communicate. They need to do all sorts of stuff. But actually. Being a statesman, um, being someone that looks the part and sounds the part and you're, you're proud that they're representing something. I think those values, that was this word he used all the time. That was just brilliant, Arsene.
1: I do miss those early days of when he came in and, and how we felt watching some of the football that we watched. And I've said this on here before, when we won the league title against Everton and the way we played in those, in those first few seasons. Lee, by the way, I didn't ask you what you miss. Uh, what you miss the least?
3: Well, I think James summed it up perfectly. I think the the um, you know I grow. It's different having a working relationship with someone and seeing him. You know, every day of your life. Fans see him at a the weekend. They see him in press conferences, and this and they they could see the 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 hurt he was feeling, as Amy pointed out. But we were, you know, intimate in that relationship based on the fact you see each other every day in the dressing rooms, you know, in the canteen. You can, you can kind of um, see the real essence of the man. And I obviously wasn't there when he was going through his um, his real turmoil and the real hurt. But I can I can only imagine because I know him reasonably well to know how that really must have dug deep for him. And that's why I was kind of like, during the, the process a few years, we, it went on when people were saying time, you know, it's time, it's time, it's all. And I and I was just going, oh, please, you know, Arsene, you know, take yourself out of it because it was, it's very difficult for me at the time to say he should be removed from the, the position, he's lost this, he's done that, the team are not doing this and that. He just felt so sorry for him and knowing knowing him that well. You know, I don't miss having to think about him in pain. If you know what I mean.
1: We've uh, put out the uh, feelers on uh, on Twitter for questions uh, that you want answered. Uh oh. Well, the first one actually is for you, Lee. Um, Tony Dennis. Tony Dennis at Tony Dennis Ten. Um, who would Lee Dixon support in a Champions League in a hypothetical, I must say, Champions League final <laughs> between Arsenal and Manchester City? Oh,
3: I've seen Arsenal all day long. It's really? Not even a, it's not
1: even a. It's, of course,
2: that's not what he says on oh, his Man City podcast. I tell you.
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, listen. I always, I always told my kids from um, a young age: there's certain things in your life you can never change, and your football team is one of them. And then I immediately changed my football team when I'd been at Arsenal for X number of years to go. Well, now I'm an Arsenal because City fans asked me. Oh, I thought you were a City fan. So well i was as a kid but i'm you know if the two play against each other under any circumstances i will always want arsenal to win and i think that's the testament of the arsenal being a member of that club that you that shows how powerful that is so absolutely i'd want it to be six five for arsenal it's yeah.
1: nice <laughs> to imagine that uh, for a second that was from tony dennis uh, at tony dennis 10. Uh, this is uh, for all the panel um, uh, at capable of flight since 2000 onwards. Uh, this might be the highest amount of academy straight young kids in or around the first team. Uh, is this because this crop is better than the ones before, or has the quality of the team they're displacing
4: dropped that
1: much? Um, Amy, what do you think about that?
4: That's a good question, and I think. It- Probably. uh, It's a little bit of a mixture of the two. I mean, there's obviously some uh, extremely high-caliber talent at the moment, and that's talent that's come uh, from Hail End. Bukayo Saka is obviously the poster boy of that, but not the only one at the moment. Um, Fascinated to see how Eddie Nketiah continues to, to take those chances when I think a lot of people wondered when he went off on loan to Leeds, you know, how much... would would that actually impact on his chances of, of becoming a, a real first-team player at Arsenal? Um, but then, obviously, the likes of Martinelli coming in and blowing everybody away as well in, from that alternative route. They're real high-quality players that you'd like to hope can be at the club for a long time to come, and that's very much an a, a important point at the moment with various contracts. Um, but also, you, you know what's in front of you is important. And there's a reason that Arsenal are mid-table in terms of the the way that the the makeup of the current squad is not perfect. Um, If you imagine coming into, I don't know, take a Jeremy Aliadier coming in uh, to the Invincibles time as a youngster and having Thierry Henry and uh, Robert Pires and Dennis Bergkamp and so on in front of him you know, that's that's pretty tough. And actually, one of the things that I think is most interesting is when you look particularly at Martinelli and Nketiah, uh, and to an extent Saka obviously is a winger by trade, is these are attacking positions, which is probably where Arsenal have, in theory, some of their most experienced and sort of best players and, and most coveted players. And
1: expensive players it, as well.
4: Yeah, but, you know, the fact that they've managed to get good game time in what we had of the season before we had the break is really, really interesting because... There are other areas of the team that you think, okay, um, it's not functioning that well. Let's see what the kids can do. But they're coming in in the parts of the team where, you know, there's quality there already. So I'm not sure I really answered the question, but I think we have to watch this space. And I think that there's there's good opportunities there and they need to grab them. And that opportunity might be extended by the fact that football is going to be however it looks. Um, in terms of transfer market and so on and contracts and salaries going forward and Arsenal are going to have to be clever. I mean, James,
1: mm. uh, I mean, we're all fans, um, uh, but uh, as a fan, are you more excited by a £75 million signing or by a kid like Martinelli, say, uh, who <laughs> comes in and does something special and who's come, or say Saka, even who's actually come through the ranks?
2: It's a really difficult... I mean, I guess it depends what they do on the pitch, you know. I mean, that's really what excites me. It can be either. But of course, you do invest in these academy kids and you want them to do well. I think there are a couple of other factors in it, which is, you know, since 2000, which is the year the question mentioned, we've seen things like the quota come in in terms of homegrown players. So Arsenal had to have a bit more focus on the academy in that regard. Uh, But there's also a big economic thing. You know, in the summer last year, Arsenal made the decision to sell Alex Awobi and loan Henrik Mkhitaryan out and take a lot of money, in the process, in part to give games to these young players, but also because it helped balance the books. So I think I think it's as Amy said, it's a bit from column A, a bit from column B. I do think this is a really exciting crop of young players, and you know, Vela was not one of the name mentioned. Would he get a game in this day and age? Well. If he, if he didn't, it wouldn't be because of talent. He was a supremely gifted young player. As anyone who worked with him would say, it was about attitude for him. And what's encouraging is you look at a guy like Saka, the way he's adapted to a position that's not necessarily his preferred position, the way he's knuckled down. He looks to have the attitude and that's a massive part of it too.
1: Lee, you've played in, in plenty of teams with with you know players who've come through and also players who've been brought in. I mean, as Amy said, it's all about the balance, isn't it? think
3: James said something um, poignant there when he said it's it's about you know deep. Would you like the big signing or the young? It, it, ultimately, it's about results. It's about what happens on the pitch. It's about getting the opportunities to show what you can do. Uh, it looks like uh, you know like in this present team and squad that the youngsters are going to get an opportunity. Um, and again, taking bits of what Amy said about playing with not only coming against really good players in the squad, you've got to get past. It's a double-edged sword because you are actually improving in training by playing with the better players. So you kind of got the benefit of that, but then you've got to try and get past them in order to get in the team. So long-term, your development, if you're in a really strong squad, might be seen, Your the advantages of your development might be seen elsewhere because you can't break through but you've had your education there so it is a balancing act i mean if you look at the the, the players that got in the side when i uh, the young players david rowcastle michael thomas paul davis obviously who's a bit older but that that type of that generation they they were in the side got given a chance by george and in a in a mediocre team who were not doing particularly well in the league and then all of a sudden they go on and win the league, and then blossom into this into all really, really quality good players. So you could say that's a huge amount of success. That has to happen again in order for those players to then go be recognised in the same ilk as as the players I've just mentioned. So again, whether that happens, it depends on. It, it could depend on how, how successful Arteta is in 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 gaining more money or more. For, um, giving the opportunities to the players to to show what they can do.
1: Um, one point I just wanted to make on what James said: uh, all things being equal, if you have uh, an academy player doing something special and a seventy-five million pound signing doing something special, uh, the academy player gives me more pleasure knowing that he's come through the ranks. That's just a person. Does he really? Yes.
4: yes. I was just thinking about that. Definitely. I mean, I was I was thinking, do I love Dennis Bergkamp? You know compared to Paul Merson, say, sort of similar types of players. And one came through as a young kid, everybody, you know, sort of loved, and another one was a global star, and I loved them both differently. And I, don't, I, w- I didn't have a kind of um, underpowered affection for one or the other because of where they came from. They just I, I just developed an affinity for what I liked about each of them individually, differently.
3: Well, actually, Amy, Amy, let, let me just re- let me just come back at you that and say, okay, Paul Merson had come from uh, Ajax, and Dennis Burkamp had been the homegrown player.
2: <laughs> yeah.
4: Go on. Now you've totally, completely tangled up my brain. Well,
2: it, it, I think it's a good point though, because <laughs> like Merson, Paul Merson a, was a great player, but Burkamp was just astonishing, and I suppose if we haven't had an academy player have we to be quite that level so it's kind of difficult to Not imagine how yet. you might feel
4: uh, yeah but but what I'm saying is that in terms of like people of a certain age when Paul Merson came through everybody just loved him because mm. he you know he, play, he was a maverick he played with character he did he's a really good player by the way people underestimate who, don't, who, who didn't watch him quite what a, an excellent footballer he was um, still got it and oh, there, Harry's heroes yeah yeah if yes. you watch that he was still, he still looks brilliant still but yeah, I'm just not, I just think that you can love or or like, or whichever the correct word is, players differently. And it it doesn't have to be because one is homegrown and another isn't.
1: Uh, Tom underscore 92, uh, the old classic with a caveat. It says, would you rather finish in the top four or win the cup? Uh, he asks because he's got no idea how European football will look next season. Um Even when I knew, can I just answer this first, even when I knew how European football looked next season, I'd still rather win a cup than finishing the top four every time because football surely is about magical moments. And I didn't get, as much as I enjoyed Kieran Gibbs' tackle against West Brom that stopped us from drawing the game and got us into the top four, I got a lot more joy watching Aaron Ramsey score the winning goal in cup finals.
2: Such, I think it's funny this question's come up in the week we're talking about Arsene Wenger because you know this was kind of Arsene's eternal dilemma in some respects he always yeah. talked about the value of the top four as a trophy and I think that's because he thought about it a little bit like an economist at times and he was looking at the bank balance and what would help the club grow financially but as a fan you've got to say the trophy haven't you? you've got to say the medal you've got to say the day out at Wembley I do think that you know, but but there is a there is another side to it. You know, you think of the three FA Cups we won towards the end of Arson's reign. In that period, we slipped out of the Champions League, slipped out of contention at the top of the table. So you know, in some ways, that hurt us a great deal, but we do have those memories. So really, I mean, sorry that fence is, if there's room for me on it uh, with you, Amy. I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: communal Electric uh, at Oblerov asked, can you talk about the composition of Arsenal crowds over the course of your respective fanships, if that's a word, uh, stroke careers? Any noticeable trends, it said, beyond more posh people in posh seats? I mean, I, I mean we, we're really talking about the difference between Highbury and the Emirates. Are we not here, um, Lee? I, do you notice a change in the crowd? You didn't play a lot at the Emirates. Do you play at all at the Emirates actually? But um, Just Dennis
3: Burkamp's testimony. Slightly will different. Set Thierry Henry's goal up, <laughs> but just don't don't know if you remember that anyway. <laughs>
1: um Arsenal does have a bit of a reputation with the high prices of the tickets for attracting quite well heeled fans who and we talked about this the other week, who are more sort of members of an audience, if you like, rather yeah. than fans. I mean, what do you think so, about
3: So I think that I think when you when you word it like that then definitely yes there's been a difference between um the way that the uh the modern day fan should we put it watches a game um and Amy being a being a proper fan um might uh might have a different opinion on that but i think based on the fact that she she got i'm talking as if she's not here she goes to games and um She'll go to a game with her friends and meet people and it'd be like it used to be. But I think that's dwindling.
4: I think, Je- sure. I think James Annie do as well, I'd say. Um, Sorry, but... James. No, that was right. <laughs> didn't even apologise to me, by, by the
1: way, did know. Yeah. <laughs> go on, <laughs> Amy. Just...
3: I thought you were Tottenham fans,
1: do Oh, please. You? Oh, no. Oh, my God, really? Is this what this is about? Anyway, Amy? I, I, I think... <laughs> I'm shocked. I I think one of the things
4: that, you know, I, I I sometimes feel like um, a bit of an old bore when I, when I try and compare sort of the fan experience when I first started to go to, to now. And obviously it's evolved over time, but I think there are a few things that are really, really obvious. The fact that you could just go off the cuff was a big thing. Obviously nowadays, that's very, very much more difficult. And, as a, as a youngster especially, uh, the ability to just go with your mates to a game on a Saturday afternoon for not much money. You could probably afford it with your pocket money. You could probably, um, there was no mobile phones obviously, so ring up someone's house or leave a message with their mum or whatever or make a plan at school and say, do you want to meet up and go to the game? And you could just go and it would cost a couple of quid and you could meet outside the ground and go in and find a spot. And if somebody was a friend of a friend and you said, oh, do they want to come as well? It could be completely last minute. People could rock up at literally five to three for a three o'clock kickoff with a couple of quid. And that that had an influence on the types of people who went to games. It was easier. Also, because tickets were cheaper, it was funnier, I think, and a bit less serious and a bit less intense than going to football is. I think nowadays people almost... I don't blame anyone for this, but you are spending a lot of money and investing a lot in it. Expectations um, is what you're talking about. There's a about. lot of expectation. There's a, it, it can be a bit demanding, you know. Yep. It's a bit of a sitting back and waiting for the players to entertain you, do well, work hard or win type of thing. And anything less than that, you, you can get annoyed about or people can get annoyed about. And there's much less of a sort of like, just turning up because you're going to football because you're a fan and you're going to have a bit of a laugh when or are drawn of course you care, and of course you're going to invest yourself in the game emotionally um but I just wonder whether there's something that has been lost along the way and I, I don't know how on earth you begin to bring it back um certainly not while you know it's difficult to talk about at the moment because nobody's going to games but you know in in normal football it's it's expensive and it's difficult to go regularly. I think that sense of going regularly as well. You can, you know, you could go pretty often without it necessarily being something that you worried about how expensive it was going to be and if you could afford it or what other things you'd have to sacrifice to go.
2: Yeah, I, I, I think look, football it doesn't cater to the fans who are actually there live in terms of the pricing, but there are other elements of that too. The way games get moved to accommodate TV broadcasters, mm-hmm. the, the kickoff times that aren't necessarily always the most social, you know, it, it is, it is changing in that respect. I think, You notice it almost more when it's, say, a cup game at the Emirates Stadium and you get a different crowd in who might not otherwise be there. Sometimes the atmosphere does pick up because those are fans who sort of wouldn't ordinarily be there every week. And I think that's when you feel the difference, really, what those cheap tickets, what that availability of tickets does to the atmosphere in the ground.
1: Well, you end up getting people standing up when we get a corner. Yeah, <laughs> all the old people, all the old people that I sit with go sit out. We've never scored from a corner, not since <laughs> Lee used to play. So uh, things definitely, uh, definitely have changed down there. Um, I've got one here from Martin Amory. Sorry, Martin Avery at Martin Avery eighty four. Uh, are there similarities between what Mikel Arteta is starting to build at Arsenal and how George Graham built his te- his first team? Uh, I bring in young players from the youth team or outside the club that are hungry and more experienced players get on board or say goodbye. Well, as we've been saying Lee, it's sort of needs must, isn't it really? Uh, uh but isn't that an encouraging thing to see that sort of thing happen?
3: Yeah, I think that's a good it's a really good point. I think if you um if you sit back and assess where the club's at, what what the, what um players that Mikel's got at his um, disposal and also his, I mean I don't know, his, I don't know him, I don't, I'm not personally, a, um, I've never met him, I don't know, I, I I know of him, I know what he's supposedly be about, um, we're seeing bits of that come out in his tenure already about what he's trying to create, the, the environment he's trying, trying to create and time will tell whether he's, you know, he can lace the lace the boots of of uh, of Mr George Graham, um, but if he's going around about it with that philosophy of giving the youngsters a chance, like George did, um, building a, a culture of um, understanding the club's philosophy and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and and ideals and and what the club's built on and all of that lot, which I hope he is, um, which was has been sadly missed over the last few years. Uh, There's been a diluting of that effect and towards the end of Arsene's tenure that, you know, I, I do feel as if some of those traditions and, uh, and, and ways of thinking and behaving was, was slightly gone out the, out the door, maybe because he he taken his eye off the ball a little bit because the pressure was on elsewhere. But there needs to be some custodian there, making sure that that stays, um, stays at the f- forefront of everybody's thoughts. It's got to be the first thing you think about certainly was when I came to the club it was you know remember who you are what you are and who you represent daily and getting back to those those ideals I think he's 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 about that and that'd be good so there is similarities there's no doubt about that Um, huge mountains to climb in order to of discipline of uh, integrity of all the other you know strap words you can throw at at, uh, George Graham but um, if he does half as well as george did then we'll you know we'll be
1: on the on an upward curve amy um it is important as i've said to lee as we've all been saying getting that mixture right but there there does it, it, there was a good feeling before we went into lockdown was there not
4: yeah i think so um i you know it's going to be fascinating to see how how our, our arsenal pick up and um, partly because i think you know more or less, everybody's fit. I mean, not quite, but I mean, there seems like there's a, probably a lot more options. I mean, there was quite a few missing and, and uh, uh, you know, making amending do at different departments of the team. And now I think the competition for places coming back in should be extremely high. And I, I was trying to think the other day, like, who do you pick to start the first game or even the second game or whatever? And it's quite difficult. I think there are a few people who might not have been in everybody's mind to start who I think are are giving Mikel Arteta a serious not headache but you know a challenge to see who he picks well Eddie scored a hat-trick
1: didn't he in the friendly game the other day so that's obviously got to make him think a little bit Uh, James um, I mean I know what what Martin here is saying about ruffling the status quo I mean in the end Mm. the status quo is whatever Mikel Arteta makes it right
2: yeah, I guess. But I mean, this is a squad with a few uh, ageing players, ageing stars, too. You look at people like Ozil or Bemiang, they're all post-30. And sooner or later, Mikel's going to have to make decisions on these guys where possible. Is he going to make them part of his plans or is he going to look to build for the future and move forward? Uh, it's a really, really fascinating time. I think... Look, I'd love to think that he could come in and do a similar job to what George Graham did and be that disciplinarian and kind of hammer the club and the team into some sort of shape. Uh, So, yeah, it's a hell of a precedent. If he can live up to that, then we'll have something special on our hands.
1: Talking of fitness, uh, Harry S. at Harry Hair Bear. Uh, he said, We've seen photos of Torreira looking trimmer uh, AF, is what it says. You can work it out for yourself during the lockdown. Um, and he asked, Which player do you reckon is most likely to have been sitting on the couch getting into too many bags of chips? I mean, my son said he saw a picture of Kevin De Bruyne at Man City. He's put on it, he's got a bit of timber on him. Um, I mean, I was trying to imagine a fat. Uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang it, I just can't my head doesn't work that way but is anyone <sighs> Lee do you see anyone in the squad who might like a, a snack a bit too much Um, I'd like
3: to think none of them no. because
1: I mean they're all they're athletes not, now you, aren't they
3: it's, yeah they all yeah they all appear to be I mean the, the the sports science and the the level of monitoring that goes on with players now I mean my son's strength and conditioning coach for the FA with the lionesses and he you know what 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 his day-to-day job entails about checking everything and making sure they're fit and they're they're healthy and they're doing this that and the other i mean it's God, there's not enough hours in the day i was like what happened to just standing on the scales on a friday and pressing your thumb on the side of the scale to make you go lighter like paul merson used to do i mean what happened to those days i missed that i missed those scales <laughs>
1: I mean, there might be a few players, James, Amy. There might be a few we see running around who put on a few pounds. But as Lee says, it's different now, isn't it? Really?
2: Yeah. I mean, there are players, there are athletes who, when they're inactive, they do carry more weight. I mean, Eden Hazard took a lot of stick, didn't he, in Madrid for when he turned up for training there last summer, and he he wasn't. How
1: fat is he now? Do you imagine?
2: <laughs> well, I, I mean, I couldn't possibly comment. But but the thing is, <laughs> I think Arsene Wenger actually talked about that and said. I think I remember him talking about Hazard and saying, look, that's his body type. And when he trains, that changes. I think he might have said it about Saul Campbell as well, that he was sort of a machine that had to really be at kind of peak condition to be at his best. Gonzalo Higuain turned up for Juventus training the other day. Italian press were full of it. that He's massively overweight. But I reckon that can be regained quite quickly for some of these players. And I think Arsenal have been pretty careful in terms of giving these guys individual programmes, checking in with them regularly. They sent, you know, GPS data, and all that, they get all that from them. I'd be amazed if anyone's got away with piling on a few pounds.
1: Well, Amy, we would hope so, right? We want them fit and raring to go. He said this is the first time that all Arsenal players have been fit since 1948, apparently. Um, have you, <laughs> I mean, I mean, one would hope that they are going to be fit and raring to go.
4: Well, I think if they're not, they're not going to be in the first team.
3: On a, se- on a serious note, on, on about that, um, Stoney, about. Fitness and stuff. I was talking to Josh about it. This my son and I uh, was saying, it's this is unprecedented that these players are going back into um, a full on start. You know, like nine, ten games to go of the season. Full on. You know, everybody's expecting them to just go smashing into each other and back into the Premier League as if it's nothing's ever happened and I, we, and we've seen it in the Bundesliga with 225% or 250% more injured yes. soft tissue injuries we're in, we're going into a position now where these players are risk going into there's going to be a huge amount of injuries there's no you're not even going to get away from that you don't say oh, they might get injured there's going to be a lot of soft tissue injuries they've done the pre-season without any games so you're doing a pre-season expecting to go into full blown physical contact when you're not thinking about the consequences like you do in training or I'll just take it easy there or pull out of that because I'm not quite ready. Did it you're going into a game where you, you your mind doesn't your mind takes over and you just go, right, I'm going for that ball. There's gonna be hamstrings, thigh strains, groin strains, left, right and centre. So this this fitness level, and we we're talking about it. It is an important thing. They shouldn't be overweight. But the more important more pressing thing for me is how how can we get through these next nine games? All the teams with with a squad that looks like it hasn't been, you know, decimated by ripped muscles everywhere.
1: Yeah. Well, I and mean, that's part of the reason I know, Amy, you talked about Um, the five substitutions uh, with Arsene Wenger and I'm sure that's part of the reason why isn't it I wanted to ask actually uh, one more great question from Ken Turner at Kent 366 Um, Arsene Wenger's book comes out in October Uh, assuming he doesn't read it himself who should be the voice of the audio book Uh, Amy I'll come to you first
4: no I can't I wouldn't listen to it if it was (laughs) anyone else I, I mean, as it is, I just read words by him and I hear it, hear his voice in my head anyway, so... Nah, 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 Not I'm, having I'm, it? I'm abstaining. Not having yeah. it, James? Although the only thing oh, I would say me. once is that I was um, uh, a theatre director for the Almeida, theatre in Islington, uh, called Rupert Gould, who's also a big Arsenal fan, was in touch with me about a, um, potentially uh, writing some sort of film uh, slightly based on Arsene Wenger, and um, he... I wanted uh, uh, Christoph Waltz to play him. And actually, I thought that kind of works, if you look at...
2: It's quite a good casting, it? yeah.
4: It's uh, it was really good casting. Uh,
1: Small, though, isn't it? But I see the point you're making. James, he, what about you?
2: Camera tricks. You can make him look bigger. I, uh, Arson's book. Ray Parler? He'd be good. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of contrast.
1: Uh, Lee, do you have an answer for this one?
2: Cluso. <laughs>
1: Peter Sellers as Inspector Cluso. Peter Sellers. Yeah. All right. I, I, well, I was going to say Morgan Freeman, by the way. I just quite like the idea of Morgan Freeman. Uh, mm. As Arsene mm. Wenger.
4: For no apparent Morgan meaning. Freeman or Ray Parler. <laughs> well, it's so hard
1: to choose between those two. Um, Lee, we're going to let you go now. It's lovely, uh, as always, uh, to see you. Um, and no doubt we'll see you again a few minutes after we start the next podcast.
3: <laughs> no, I'm going to be... I'm fashionably going to be later
1: next week. <laughs> nice. Uh, I nice quite to, like it. Nice to see you, see Lee. See mate. Now, uh, the 30-day free trial for The Athletic is still available. Uh, you go to athletic.com forward slash arsenal pod and you will get a 30-day free trial. Um, and on... Uh, in that trial, you will you will be able to read uh, some of the things that, uh, for example, Amy this week uh, she had a little chat with Arsene Wenger. Did you not? Uh, um, you sounded so happy just to be speaking to him, Amy.
4: Yeah, I I I miss speaking to him. Um, I think that for twenty two years, when you've been listening to someone. Uh, you probably by the end of that time either never want to hear from them ever again or you're going to really miss them if they're not around. And that kind of regularity of, of having um, uh, been able to hear things that he has to say, his wisdoms um, and also his witticisms on a regular basis was um, such a a rewarding thing. And the opportunity to speak to him again is obviously always welcome and he, he's a guy that I would listen, honestly, I think I would listen to him describing paint drying and probably find it interesting. Um, so maybe I need to calm down. But it, it was great to hear him from that perspective he has now. It felt like an important moment because football obviously is re- restarting after this strange and unprecedented pause. And in his role uh, as chief of global development for FIFA, he has, he's always been a guy with a big, bigger picture view on things but I mean it's his job now to be putting into practice and being at the heart of conversations about the the things that concern the game globally right now and so yeah it was it was very good to hear he was on form and motivated to make sure that he puts across points of view that need to be heard when it comes to how football might look and the problems it might face and what can safeguard it in this very complicated time. Let's hear some of that interview now. How much have you missed football for someone like you who has been watching games all your life? Suddenly there are no matches. Well, I
0: I missed it. I still followed, uh, you know, because I had many meetings with uh, FIFA on phone. So I was still involved a lot in in the game. What you miss is uh, the games, you know, the competition. And uh, that was, of course, uh, difficult from one day to the next. I have no, no, no expectation to watch a game, no comment on, no thinking after the game, what happened, you know. So that created a void. But uh, overall, I was still uh, involved a lot in football. And for us, I uh, had many t- meetings. Uh, people were more available to to speak about the future of the game.
4: I mean, obviously, when you're joining FIFA, partly to have this responsibility for looking after the future of the game, how greatly has that those conversations have sort of changed direction because of, of this global crisis?
0: Well, what I would say is that uh, you realise that football without the fans uh, is not real. Uh, I would say you have uh, to two... Elements in the football games. You have people who make the spectacle, these are the players and the fans who go to the stadium, mm-hmm. and people who watch it, uh, who watch it on television. So you have divided the first one in two, that means the spectators have to stay at home, mm-hmm. and the only one part of the spectacle are the players. And uh, so you realize how much you miss that.
4: Can you imagine the Premier League without crowds?
0: No. <laughs> because what makes it special in England as well a part of it is uh, the way the games are filmed, but as well the way people respond to the game. I think it is the best country in the world to respond to what's happening on the pitch. Okay. And that's we really, that's why I think it will be the most handicapped championship as well, without that.
4: That's interesting. Um in a kind of bigger picture, how, how do you think football will be different now? I mean, not just looking at it on the pitch, but just when the game tries to rebuild itself, I suppose, as an economic model, as a, you know, things like that.
0: Look, I'm uh, not very much uh, optimistic about that, mm. because I don't think uh, it will change a lot, apart from the fact that the strong strong will be stronger and the weak will be weaker. Mm-hmm. And the difference could be augmented after that, because uh, I uh, I'm convinced that uh, after that uh, the competition takes always over, you know. And when you look at the pre- at the economic predictions, mm-hmm. it looks like, uh, of course, uh, all the countries' uh, productivity uh, will be down between eight to ten percent in all Europe, but. Mm-hmm the Central Bank of Europe predicts already that next year we will be positive again. So I, I think uh, that it will not change a lot
4: Okay, so you, you economically. think mm-hmm, that, that, that football will bounce back at the highest level financially? What, what,
0: yes. Uh, what is terrible is that uh, uh, the lower leagues Mm-hmm. will suffer a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, the real problem of a game is not the top-level divisions. The real problem of our game is uh, the lower leagues.
4: Presumably that's also the case, not just the lower leagues, but maybe the leagues around the world that are less uh, popular. No less important, but I don't know, in various countries in Africa or Asia or um, you know, wherever, where there, wherever there is football. But if it's not a rich football country, that, that, that's also going to be something that suffers. Presumably. Yes, of
0: course. But uh, there's a lot of work to do. I see that now at FIFA, you know. But uh, the difference between Europe, basically, and the rest of the world has become bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of work for football development to be done in Africa to get regular competition for the youth uh, teams, yep. to get regular competition for women,
1: mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm.
0: There's a lot to do. And... Uh, hopefully I can contribute a little bit.
4: With the potential of big clubs getting bigger and small clubs getting weaker in this situation, is it a dangerous thing that the financial fair play rules are being relaxed at the moment because of the current situation? Does that worry you?
0: It is a bit uh, a difficult subject because I did fight a lot for the financial fair play. Yes. But uh, what I regret is that uh, when I did fight against it, the teams were allowed to do what they wanted. And these teams are in charge now mm-hmm. in the strong positions in the league. Mm-hmm. So they are, of course, now supportive of financial fair play because it suits them. But uh, they do not want anybody new to come in and be a threat. <laughs> Maybe we should open the door uh, by being very cautious, ethically, you know. Yes. But uh, uh, to create more Flexibility in the results. Maybe we have to open the door, mm-hmm. even or, or or make sure that everybody has the same resources because it's too predictable now. For example, in France, uh, Paris Saint Germain. Before the championship starts, everybody asks who will be second.
4: Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, do you think there's something that can be done to stop those kind of scenarios?
0: Yes, uh, I, I'm convinced that UEFA is conscious of that.
4: Maybe salary caps or something one day? Or, hmm.
0: uh, salary caps, I'm not completely convinced it works because there's always... a Look in, in America, people speak of salary caps in America, but you have in America in the same team, people make $5 million and people make $50,000. Hmm. That doesn't work as well.
4: Um, just, just more generally, what can football bring... To society, at a time when we've had a worldwide crisis, there's a lot of problems. What What do you love about football that you think will help people to have it back?
0: What football could uh, I think football could could uh, uh, be show the way to the rest of the society how we should behave. Uh, first, we speak a lot about racism now, and I think uh, uh, football is based on merit only. Not on who you are, where you come from, and how you look, mm-hmm. and uh, that's maybe a, a a good way to to teach the world how uh, uh, we should behave. And sport, sport in general, is a great leader in that.
4: Are you confident that those kind of things can happen? I mean, is it, it's 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 easy to have the desire, but it's probably more difficult to to get those things up and running.
0: Amy, tu connais la différence entre un optimiste et un pessimiste hein?
4: Absolument.
0: Un optimiste, c'est un imbécile heureux, mm-hmm. et un pessimiste, un imbécile malheureux. Oui, oui, je comprends. Je suis un optimiste,
1: je pense que le monde va forward. Uh, lovely uh, to hear you, Amy, talking to Arsene Wenger. Uh, I did look it up on Google Translate, but for those who haven't got to that yet, what uh, what did you say? What was that exchange going on at the end of the interview?
4: <laughs> I'd quite like to know what the Google Translate comes up with, to be fair. But, um, uh, yeah, it, 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 Arsene um, was talking about the, the difference between being an optimist and a pessimist and uh, reverted to... To French because there's a, a saying in French "ambassieur uh, heureux," uh, which kind of means sort of a, a village idiot type of thing, and uh, so you use it as a sort of play on on words, essentially to say like an optimist, you're a, you're a happy idiot, and if you're a pessimist, you're an unhappy idiot. So it's a kind of classic vengarism um, for which he became so famed, and uh, you know it it just kind of shows typically how sort of clever and funny he is when he wants to try and um, amplify a point I think the bottom line is you know yeah it's it's hard times for football but you know he he wants to stay optimistic
2: yeah I I was reading your piece earlier and there was a comment underneath from one of our readers called Alexander O and they just said Arsenal is bigger than Arsenal now and I thought that was kind of Amazing in a way because it's kind of true. I mean, in a way, he always thought beyond Arsenal as well as absolutely dedicating himself to Arsenal. He always had this bigger perspective on football. Uh, Do you think that he, do you get the impression that he really will be able to affect change? Because a lot of the times you see people go into these kind of executive roles in FIFA and it doesn't turn out necessarily how they might have hoped or how we as fans might have hoped. Do you think that he has the sense that he can really? change the game for the better
4: well that's a a great question and I think if he didn't feel that he could uh he probably wouldn't have gone into that situation I think that he's a man of convictions um and there were, you know, over the years, he's even predating Arsenal, even going back to when he was the manager of, of Monaco, and they fought against the financial uh, doping going on back then of Marseille, which he feels just, you know, deprived his team of league titles like years and years ago. Um, he's been a campaigner for things he believes are right in football for decades, mm. uh, but of course, a lot of that time he was fighting from the point of view of a manager of one club. And, you know, he's now able to take his views into the uh, decision-making meeting rooms of FIFA who run the game. So they kind of have to listen to him now, you know. Before, I guess, that if a manager or even a group of managers or a group of clubs want to put forward um, something that they don't like about the way the game is being run, I mean, there's always going to be points of view. I mean, if you take even... FFP at the moment, financial fair play. That's that's always been quite controversial. You're always going to have a range of opinions because people have a vested interest, um, and people are going to try and have a a, a set of rules and regulations that best suits them about things like that. So you're never really going to get a consensus. If it's a club v country debate, you're never really going to get a consensus. There's all sorts of because sorts of things in, involving the game where you you know you're unlikely to get a shared point of view. Uh, but what he will, what he can do now is be right front and centre of all those conversations. And he will always both listen, because he's a good listener, and express the views of people he thinks are important. Uh, so can he affect change? We have to wait and see. But uh, I think it's a great thing that even they've got a football brain like him uh in, in those conversations, I mean, we didn't get as far as discussing whose idea and what exactly was the course of events that led to the five substitutions. But I'm pretty sure that he would have been quite heavily involved in saying exactly what Lee was talking about before. You're going to get these these muscular injuries. We're going to have big problems in how we deal physically with this these few games coming up with the restarts of seasons. There's then going to be presumably a break and then we go again. How do we protect players? How do we allow managers to manage? This is something we have to do. So, yeah, I think there are things he can do and will do.
1: Amy, one of the things I really liked about what he said, and I'm with you, it was nice to hear his voice again. Um, And he was talking about the difference between the people who watch it at home and what he said was that the people who make the spectacle, and he knew, and he said it was the players and the fans, and he was talking about how the Premier League. Will be most affected because of the way the fans respond to what's happening on the pitch in a very sort of organic way. Um, I, I, I mean, he, he has such a deep love for our, for not just for the game, but for the English game, I think. And it does, it does, it's nice to hear it, isn't it?
4: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, you know, he was sort of very um, specific. And I thought that was a, a, a really fascinating observation. Um, if you've been to games in uh, in different countries, you notice that you know crowd atmospheres or what have you are not universal and the same everywhere. So I mean, Arsenal played um, Eintracht Frankfurt in the Europa League earlier on this season, and first minute to the last, flag waving. Um, you know, the same kind of high intensity tempo, chanting nonstop, the same kind of intensity, but what it isn't actually doing is almost reacting to the ebb and flow yes, of the game. Yes. Whereas, of course, I think in England, we are more accustomed to kind of the, the oohs and ahs and the sort of the anxiety and then the excitement and all those changing emotions as they build and they crescendo and then they ebb away and then the fear comes in and then the anger or whatever it might be, according to what's going on in a, in a particular game. You do feel that the fans and the players uh, and the game itself is all kind of on this same uh, uh, piece of theatre unfolding on this, with its its different emotional kind of vibes along the way. So I thought it was interesting that Wenger felt that actually not having that might have this kind of extra dimension in terms of how English football is without fans. Obviously, there's no fans more or less anywhere at the moment where games are on. So, um, yeah, but he also said, and I thought it was a kind of typically observant, nice uh, Wenger comment where he goes, you realise that football without fans is not real. Um, You know, and I think, again, as you mentioned, Stoney, it was, if you said to most people, kind of split into two, like the football experience, like what's going on, you would have, well, here's the players on the pitch and here's the fans. But actually he didn't do it like that. He split it by, here's the people inside the stadium, which is the players and the fans, and here's the people sat at home watching on their telly, so he he sort of had the match going fan in with the players as the you know the the entity as the spectacle as the football match, rather than saying players on one side, fans on the other. And I thought that was quite an unusual way of looking at it and a really f- valuable one,
2: and one that shows a, a real appreciation you know for what fans bring to the spectacle to the occasion. I mean, it will be really interesting to see. How different it is! I, I saw a stat this morning from the Bundesliga, talking about sort of home and away advantage. There've been 45 Bundesliga games played behind closed doors. Uh, only 10 have been a home win. So, you know, in fact, I think the, the most common result has been an away win. A win. So, home advantage has kind of been eroded in some ways by the lack of supporters.
4: That's something that Arsene pointed out very much, so, is that he, you know, he felt that there's this uh, handicap. Because the you know the, the, the smaller teams actually need that energy that you get from a crowd to reduce the sort of quality deficit mm. sometimes. So he, he, he yeah. felt that this period upcoming is going to be a real challenge to see those kind of slight shock results where a uh, uh, you know a smaller team maybe turns over a bigger team just because you know that they're, they're at home and they can get that they can get that power.
1: It does give us an advantage in the
4: quarterfinal away at Sheffield United.
1: I feel, I genuinely yeah. do, and I'm, I'm hopeful. And you can read the full interview uh, with Amy and Arsene Wenger on the Athletic website. Uh, James, you wrote a piece about Sir Chips Keswick um, mm. and why he might—he's not chairman anymore. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, well, I mean, yeah. it sounds—it sounds quite sad. But he's eighty years old, and I, I mean, he obviously was thinking about uh, about leaving anyway, wasn't he?
2: I think so. I think that the last season or so of his time as chairman was a difficult one for him. I know Amy knows probably more about this than me, but he was very uh, frustrated in that time. And I think that there's been a kind of issue of a conflation between the board and the chairman and the football executive. And sometimes criticism that maybe should have been aimed at the latter was aimed at the former. Um and and I think that he found that difficult in a role which, you know, he didn't have a huge amount of authority. Certainly not over football matters. And wasn't able to always execute things as he as he might like. I mean, is that a, is that a fair description, Amy? Would you say? Hmm. So it, it's what's changed is that he's obviously retired or chosen to move on however you want to frame it uh and essentially there is no chairman now which i think kind of underlines the fact that this is now absolutely stance club it's another break from tradition it kind of means there are less dissenting voices at board level uh and you know for people who don't like ksc and what they've done with the club I don't think that's good news, really.
1: Well, this is what I was going to mention to you, Amy. Surely that's a blessing for Stan Kroenke in the sense that he's completely in charge,
4: but there's no one else to blame when it go. Sorry, when. If it goes wrong. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, I, I, I don't really know what... His, none of us really know what his thought, deepest thoughts and motivations are um, as regard the club. I mean, I think that, again, like everything in football, we're looking at things through this slightly altered prism at the moment because... Stan Kroenke has uh, a multi- multiple um, amount of interests in different sporting clubs. Uh, some of them, I think, are more demanding of either his time or his money. He's obviously building a big stadium project over in the US. Um, and, you know, how do how do his projects look for him uh, as investments when, you know, football is, uh, and other sports are either not happening or coming back in a new way? I mean it's it's complicated stuff so I, I don't know you have to think that anybody who has an investment in it in anything is going to want it to do well otherwise it doesn't really make much sense um if he thinks this is the best way he he's going to live or die by that decision I guess in terms of how people perceive his ownership
2: yeah I, I mean just to kind of bring the two topics together that piece that I wrote about the board when I was writing it, I put out a sort of feelers for questions for fans and so many people asked, you know, what about Arsene Wenger? Could Arsene Wenger have some kind of role within uh, the club? Yeah. And I just wanted to sort of put that to you, Amy, and kind of think, ask, you know, do you think that's ever really a possibility of Arsene coming back in any in any meaningful way?
4: I wouldn't want to guess what he's thinking, mm. but...
1: He did talk about it, didn't he, Amy? You did mention that about putting pressure on on whoever's the current incumbent is if he did come back in, in some capacity.
4: I think that was more about coaching. Um, I think, I think Arsene feels he doesn't want to put pressure on whoever is, is coaching the club rather than else elsewhere. Uh, I, I just get the feeling that the break uh, when it came was something that, it, it, you know, it needed him. It needed some time for him to adjust to a new reality, having been so immersed for so long. And, one of the things that happened I said is Arsenal I think surprised himself by how much he quite enjoyed not you know not having the day to day pressures um i suspect he thought that what he would miss would be um far stronger and outweigh the things that would be beneficial about not being Arsenal manager after all that time and actually i think in reality having a little bit of a breather, having time to um, focus on things he hadn't focused on for a while, being a bit freer to travel, to meet new people. He was doing a lot of um, charity work and and a lot of speaking at events, a lot of communication. Uh, And I think he really, really enjoyed it. Um, And it almost boosted him again. And then the FIFA thing came along. I don't imagine a return to Arsenal is particularly on the cards at the moment further down the line in future nice. depending on the shape of the club, depending on what's going on uh, at, at senior level he might if the opportunity arises he might think differently about it. but I definitely wouldn't be expecting anything anytime soon. I think perhaps the nature of the parting was tough so maybe he wouldn't be that comfortable about coming back in given the environment he left behind and how it happened. We'll probably find out a little bit more about that maybe when his book comes out, I don't know. but uh... Hopefully. Uh, let's have a song before we go.
2: Yeah, it's a tricky one this week. I mean, talking about Arsene, I suddenly th- I started thinking, oh, maybe it should be a song about missing somebody because I do, uh, I do miss him. I was going to say, um, oh, we're almost there, which was originally actually a Michael Jackson song, but I was going to go for the Alicia Keys version just to, to avoid any controversy because we're very nearly almost there for the we return are. of football.
1: We are only eight or nine days until we play Man City away. Um,
2: Tayo uh, our producer says James Brown the boss which is a pretty good shout for the Boss himself Paid the cost to
1: be the boss boss.
0: Paid the cost to be the boss I paid the cost to be the boss
2: Look at me what you see you
1: see a bad mother. Also good tune Thank you uh, Amy Nice to speak to you today Thank you James as well Pleasure See you guys Uh, We Cheers. have been The Handbrake Off podcast The Arsenal podcast Brought to you By The Athletic Thanks to Tyo as well For producing the show And not Thierry Henry As I said last week uh, Stay safe everyone See you soon mm-hmm. And you can read the full interview uh, with Amy and Arsene Wenger on the Athletic website. This is Handbrake Off, brought to you by The Athletic.